Well, as our elder Bob shared this morning, about a month from now, we'll be in the great land of Kazakhstan through a Slavic Gospel Association and Faith Bible Church. We're coordinating to go and train up 20 to 25 pastors, missionaries, and church leaders in Kazakhstan. Uh, we'll be teaching the Book of Acts and church planning. And I know Kastura and Bob and myself, we're just excited, encouraged, um, really looking forward to this opportunity to fellowship with these godly men and to minister to them. Um, for Bob and Mike, they have secular jobs. Bob's a CFO of a company. Mike is an optometrist. And their free confession is that they work to support their ministry. For them, their jobs aren't big things, you know. Their passion in life is the Lord's work, is to serve God. And they work in their secular vocations to support their ministry in the church and their missionary work. And so they're committed to supporting their own way for Kazakhstan. But it is biblical for them not to be selfish, not to hog this um, ministry opportunity. That's what Paul said in Philippians 4. He said, I'm not asking you for support, but I want to know so what I can credit to your account. I want to be partners with you in ministry. So he gave them opportunities to support their work. And that is the reason we want to give you, the uh, members of Cornerstone, opportunities to support uh, our work in Kazakhstan and also in Czech Republic this winter. In two weeks, we'll take a special offering during communion service and give you guys an opportunity for you to partner with us in the gospel ministry, totally a free will offering, not obligated to give, but we want to make sure um, we know so that we can credit to your account in the sight of God what God will be doing through our lives and through our work in those two countries. I just want to make that announcement briefly before we start our study this morning. Well, let's get to the Gospel of John, chapter 10. We have been reading verses 1 through 30 for the past few weeks, but if you've been with us, we know that our study is concentrated on verses 22 through verse 30. Last week, we started out with Piper's quote from Don't Waste Your Life, and let me just read it to you again. He writes, You don't have to know a lot of things to make a lasting difference in this world. But you do have to know, you have to know the few great things that matter and then be willing to live and die for them. The people that make a durable difference in the world are not the people who have mastered many things, but they have been mastered by a few great things. If you want your life to count, if you want the ripple effect of the pebbles you drop to become waves that reach the ends of the earth and roll on into eternity, you don't have to have a high IQ. You don't have to have good lucks or riches or come from a wealthy family or a nice school. Instead, you have to know a few great, majestic, unchanging, simple, glorious truths and set on and be set on fire by them, end quote. What he's saying is that it's not how much you know. Christianity is not about accumulating knowledge, accumulating facts, information, and statistics. 
It's not merely about growing and an understanding of the Word of God. It is about how much of you, how much of your heart is captive to few truths. Few simple glorious truths of the Word of God. That's the critical issue. And from John 10, 22 through 30, we have learned, we'll be learning many simple but earth-shattering truths. We learned two last week. The first truth was that there are two categories of people in the world. People that belong to Christ and people that do not. Those are the only, that's the only, those are the only categories that matter. Your ethnicity, your social status, your education, personality, all those things are of no consequence to the sight of God. Only thing that matters is whether you belong to God or whether you belong to this world. Second truth is that Christians belong to Christ. Christ owns Christians. That He is our owner, He is our master and our king. Because He chose us, He purchased us, and the Father gave us to His Son. Now today, we're just going to learn one truth. The third, simple, glorious truth that if you accept it in your heart, it will set your heart on fire. It's dangerous teaching. Be careful. It can very possibly transform your life. I would call this doctrine, this truth, a watershed truth. A watershed doctrine. Now, what is a watershed Francis Schaeffer writes this illustration in his book, The Great Evangelical Disaster. He writes this, In Switzerland is a high ridge of rock with a valley on both sides. One winter, the snow was lying there, unbroken, a seeming unity. However, that unity was an illusion. For it lay along a great divide. It lay along a watershed. One portion of the snow melts and flows into one valley. The snow which lay on the other side flows into another valley. Now it just so happens that on that particular ridge that the melting snow flows down that ridge into a small river. And then that water flows down to the Rhine River. The Rhine then flows on through Germany and the water ends up in the cold waters of the North Sea. On the other side of the ridge, when that snow melts, it drops sharply down the ridge into the Rhone Valley and then into Lake Geneva. And then it goes down into the Rhone River which flows through France and into the warm waters of the Mediterranean. That snow that lies along that ridge in Switzerland lies on a watershed. There's a seeming unity there, but when it melts, its destinations is literally thousands of miles apart. That is what a watershed is. A watershed divides. A clear line can be drawn between what seems at first to be the same or at least very close But in reality, it ends up in very different situations. And so in a watershed, there is a line. Now, what does this have to do with the doctrine of election and predestination, our watershed doctrine? It has everything to do with it. There is a clear line here in today's truth. 
where you stand on today's doctrine has significant implications. Where you stand on this truth matters immeasurably. The issue of predestination, the issue of election. The third glorious truth in our study of John 10, 22 through 30, is God's sovereignty in salvation. God's sovereignty in salvation. There are two basic views on this. The first view is that man has the free will to choose. Man chooses. The second view is God chooses. God only has. God's the only one who has free will. Man is bound in sin. And brothers and sisters, it is, uh, again, a watershed doctrine. In terms of life, ministry, prayer, preaching, evangelism, and missions, I don't know if there's another doctrine that so divides. A doctrine that has such incredible ramifications. It makes all the difference in the world. The single doctrine. If ever there was a doctrine that divides, this is it. But at the same time, it is the most unifying doctrine. It is a doctrine that uniquely exalts the glory and sovereignty of God. At the same time, it is a doctrine that effectively deals a death blow to man's pride. It elevates God. At the same time, it humbles man, puts man in his place. It is a doctrine that uniquely conforms to all the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament. And yet, at the same time, it contradicts everything that we experience and believe apart from Christ. Doctrine of election confronts us. It makes no sense. It confronts the core of our being. goes against our paradigm of life. It is, to those who believe it, one of the most comforting and encouraging doctrines to believers. At the same time, it is the most controversial and perhaps the most offensive doctrines in the church. It is a doctrine accused by many as irrelevant, impractical, unnecessary, but others believe that it is the most relevant doctrine. It is the most practical doctrine among all the doctrines in Scripture. Well, we'll go through this doctrine, this watershed issue this morning. Now let's go to the text today, verses 22 through 30. And you might be sitting there reading this text and say, Hey, James, where did you get election from, from this passage? I don't see predestination. Are you reading into the text? Are you interpreting the white parts again? Because I sure don't see it. You know, and I wrestled all week trying to determine verse 27, the first sentence, first clause. My sheep hear my voice. Now, what does that mean? My sheep hear my voice. Does it mean God's people recognize their master? Does it mean God's people obey Christ? Does that mean that God's people have ears or they hear the call of God, they respond, the effectual, the efficacious call of Christ to His people? Well, after wrestling all week, the answer was right in front of my eyes. It was in verse 20, 26 and 27. 
Here our Lord is in the Feast of Dedication. Verses 1 through 21, it's in October of A.D. 32. In verse 22, it is December now, the Feast of Hanukkah. He's at Jerusalem teaching his disciples, and the Jewish leaders gather around him, and they say to him, Will you tell us plainly if you are the Messiah? And Christ says, Yes, I've told you. Two evidences. I've told you by my works. And we studied this last week, how even Nicodemus, the member of the Sanhedrin, the teacher of Israel, came to Christ at night and said, We know you're from God, because no one can do these miraculous signs unless you are from God. Your works testify that God is with you, that God has sent you. So Christ says, My works testify to me, and you know that. Secondly, my words testify who I am. I have told you plainly I am the Christ. And then in verse 26 he says, You do not believe because you are not my sheep. And then he contrasts that with, My sheep hear my voice. So that gave me the answer to what it means, My sheep hear my voice. It means, You do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep believe in me. Hearing is a figurative way of saying Believe, faith. You do not believe, but my sheep, they believe. And now this is where predestination comes in. This is where election comes in. Jesus does not say, you are not my sheep because you do not believe. He does not say that. Right? He says, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Does that make sense? Right? He does not say... You are my sheep because you believe in me. Right. He says, you believe in me because you are my sheep. The person's essence comes before the person's faith or non-faith. Right. If you are not of Christ's sheep, you do not believe. If you are Christ's sheep, you do believe. Right. Who you are is determined by God. Determined by God's choice. Predestination. If you reject Christ, it is because of who you are. If you have faith in Christ, it is also because of who you are. As I said, it is a controversial doctrine, this doctrine of election. The act of choice whereby God picks an individual for salvation. Arguably the most controversial doctrine in the scriptures. A.W. Pink once began a sermon by saying this. I am going to speak tonight on one of the most hated doctrines of the Bible. Namely, that of God's sovereign election. End quote. He was right. It is a hated doctrine. He later wrote these words. I find them very insightful. Quote, God's sovereign election is the truth most loathed and reviled by the majority of those claiming to be Christians. Let it be plainly announced that salvation originated not in the will of man, but in the will of God. But loud are the cries of anger and indignation against such teaching. End quote. There is much controversy much anger directed towards this doctrine, 
And we have to ask why. And I give you four reasons why I believe there's so much um, just intense heat against this teaching. First of all, I believe it's pride. Man's pride. Why is it hard for some people to accept the biblical doctrine of sovereign election? Because of man's pride. And his pride, it is hard for him to acknowledge that his salvation is from God. In his fallen pride, he wants to assume some responsibility. He wants some credit for his own salvation. He wants at least some modicum of credit for at least believing in Christ, for having made the right choice. All the things that man has worked for, his confidence in the flesh, he wants at least some boast. He wants some, some glory in his righteousness. Apostle Paul talks about this in Philippians 3, right? He said, if you guys have confidence in the flesh, if you guys have opportunity to boast, I have more. And he writes a resume of his confidence before Christ, his religious accomplishments. He said, I was circumcised in the eighth day. I'm a, I'm a member of the people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin. The first king of Israel, Saul, was from this tribe, Benjamin. And I'm named after him. My name is Saul. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regards to the law, I'm a Pharisee. I'm a, I was legalistically committed to the laws and the traditions of the Old Testament. As for my zeal, I persecuted the church. As for legalistic righteousness, I was faultless. Paul said, this is what I reveled in. I judged everybody based upon my accomplishments. This fueled my pride. This was my standing before God. And when God would have asked me, Saul, why should I let you into heaven? He would have listed these accomplishments. That was his confidence. Well, what about you? What is your confidence? What is your boast in the secret places of your heart? Maybe you're a good family man. You have personal morals. I have a good heart. I'm faithful to religion. I give to charity. Pride does not want to give up those things. Pride wants to hold on to them and say, yes, I deserve some credit for my salvation. But when Paul confronted Christ, or when Christ confronted Paul on the road to Damascus, what did Paul conclude? He said, rubbish. Everything changed when he heard the gospel. When he saw the righteousness of Christ and his own depravity of his pride, he said, Scubalon, excrement, all those things that I cherished in my life that I thought were my righteousness were like filthy rags in the sight of God. And he says in Philippians 3, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ my Lord, who's, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them scubalon, rubbish, dung, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. This doctrine is hated because, first and foremost, because of our pride. Second reason that people often give is, this doctrine is unfair. It's unjust of God to choose some and not choose others. And to not allow a man the right to choose. Allow a man, man freedom to choose. After all, right, that's, that's, our, that's William Wallace's cry, freedom, right? 
Patrick Kelly, give me liberty, or give me free will, or give me death. That's one of the basic pillars of, of, of our country, freedom. How can God not give me the freedom to choose Him or not? How can He choose for me? That is not fair. Well, first of all, dear saints, we can never say God is unfair. What standard of justice do we hold Him to? Is there justice apart from God? Is there righteousness or fairness apart from God? Do we judge according to our standard of righteousness? Do we have a standard of righteousness that's greater than God? That's above even Him? Psalm 97 verse 2 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. Righteousness and justice are the very foundation of the throne of God. God is just. God is righteous. Whatever He does is righteous. For sinful men who have committed all kinds of heinous, wicked, depraved acts in our hearts and indeed, for us to go to God and say, God, that's fair or not, that's utter foolishness. That's utter pride. Turn, me, turn with me to Romans chapter 9. And Paul confronts this issue in Romans 9. He, he talks about the twins, Jacob and Esau. And before they were even born, God says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Romans 9.14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is God unjust? And Paul's imperative answer, his, his strong negative is, by no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will. It's not about man. Not on human desire. But God who has mercy. Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the world. Why did God raise up Pharaoh? Just to bring him down and show his glory, show his power and might. Verse 18, so that God has mercy on whom he wills, and he, and he hardens whomever he wills. Why? Because he's God. Because he's the one in authority. He's the creator. He's the sovereign. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he find fault in me? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man? Answer back to God. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honor use and another for dishonored use? Romans turns it around. Justice. God is just. God is righteous. In all His authority, He acts according to His will. We do not have the authority to question God because we are His creation and we are in sin. And even another issue, if we go to God and say, God, we want justice, and God says, yes, I'll give you justice, what is just, then everyone goes to hell. Every person that ever lived in all human history goes straight to hell. That's just. Right? 
because we sinned against God. The penalty of sin is death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death. What is death? It is separation. When we die physically, we're separated from our our flesh. Our soul is separated from our flesh. And spiritual death is our separation from God and eternity in hell. We tell God, God, we want justice. And God says, okay, everyone goes to hell. See, salvation, election, it's grace. It is mercy where God chooses some out of his compassion and love. Right. In Matthew twenty fifteen, the the landowner, he goes in the morning at nine o'clock and he says, Will you work for me for a dollar a day? The guy says yes. Then he goes at noon, there's some more workers, will you work for me for an hour a day? The guy says yes. Three PM, they close at five. Will you work for me for a dollar a day? Yes. So five PM they all come and the guy who started working at nine PM nine AM he's thinking, Hey, I worked eight hours. I'm going to get more than a dollar, right? Because this guy worked only two hours, right? How you get more? And so he hands out everybody one dollar. And the guy who worked eight hours, he goes to the landowner and goes, that's not fair, right? How can you give that guy a dollar working two hours? I worked eight hours. That's not fair. The landowner says, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what, with that belongs to me? It's my, my money. Am I not allowed? You agreed to work for a dollar. If I choose to give this man grace and give him a dollar for working two hours, don't I have that right? It's a rhetorical question, obviously. Of course. That's what God is doing. It's his mercy. It's his grace. It's his salvation. He has that authority. He has that right. Well, third reason it is so hatred and, hated and controversial. I spoke at UCLA ACF this past Wednesday. I opened up their quarter um, uh, of meetings and it was just a great time of you know, like over 150 collegians packed into a room and great time of ministry and I had a, it's a real good time. They're all you know responsive afterwards. I was talking to all these students and I, somehow our dialogue went into um, salvation and election and his issue was well doesn't that make us robots right? If God chooses us and creates in our hearts love for Him. Doesn't that make us into robots? Is that what God wants? I've been taught that God wants us to freely love Him. Because if that's not volitional love, it is, it's, a wrong, it's not true love. And I was like, brother, you know, I understand you've been taught that. But it's based on a wrong presupposition, wrong foundation. Don't you understand? We were robots. And God set us free. It's not we were free and God made us into robots. We were robots. We were enslaved to sin. And I was telling him, I was telling the people at UCLA, you don't have to study to learn how to lie. You don't have to get a, go to graduate school to learn how to be selfish and prideful and cheat and hate and be malicious, right? To be violent. It comes naturally. You don't have to go to college for that, right? But it comes naturally. Try to fight that. Try to fight self-centeredness. Try to fight pride. Fight anger. You can't. Why? You're enslaved. You're, we're robots. We're slaves to sin. Well, Christ chose us and saved us. He set us free. Now, freedom, according to Paul in the Bible, is not great. I can live for Christ and sin now. I'm free. That's not freedom. Christian freedom is, I run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. Psalm 119.97, right? 
can, I can follow Christ now. Before I wanted to, but I couldn't because I was bound in sin. Now He set me free. I can obey. I can live for Christ. Brothers, brother, I was telling you and I tell you, we don't become robots. We're set free from being robots. And a final reason that is so controversial, maybe you hate it, is a personal reason. Maybe the, this is the greatest reason. People sit here and listen and ask themselves, this is a, you know, this causes me to question, am I elect? Am I chosen? This is a fearful doctrine. What if I'm not elect? It doesn't seem fair to me. What if I'm not elect? What about me? Well, let me give you an illustration. Let's say after church today, you see me going around, passing out tickets, inviting certain people to an event. And the people that I give these tickets to, they're just excited. They're just stoked. They're like tears coming out from their eyes. They're so happy that, that I invited them to this event. And you're like, oh man, how come he's not inviting me? The tickets ran out or running out. Why am I excluded? How come Jesus is not giving me this ticket? And then you find out what I'm giving out. You find out there are tickets to a 10-hour ballet performance. <laughs> ballet marathon, right? And La Mirada Theater. And then you're like, I don't want those tickets. <laughs> you're like, I hope he doesn't invite me. I don't want to go. The last thing I need in my life is to see men in tights dancing for five hours or ten hours. Right? Would you be bothered if I didn't invite you? No, you'd be glad. Maybe some of you, right? You're saying, I hope he doesn't invite me. You know, I ho- I'd rather go to the dentist and spend five hours in the dentist chair than go to one hour ballet. Right? Well, same thing. Is there any one of you here who wishes to be holy? Who wishes to be regenerate? To, who desires to lead their life of sinfulness and walk in holiness? If you say, James, me, I want to live in holiness. I want to live for Christ. Then you're elect. Then God has chose you. You're part of the chosen. But if you say, no, I don't want to walk in holiness. I don't want to follow Christ. I love sin. I love the world. I would hate to live a life like that. Then why do you care if you're chosen or not? What's it to you? You don't want to go to Go be with Christ. You don't want to follow Christ. Why do you hate this doctrine? Because you're excluded from the elect. When you don't want it in the first place. This is a controversial doctrine. Maybe a hated doctrine. But we need to understand that this is what the Bible teaches. It's a thoroughly a biblical truth. A watershed doctrine but a biblical one. Let me just give you, and we tackled this in John 6 in depthly. Right? If, you want, if you want a, a deeper uh, 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 dealing with this text, our tape library has that. Our FOF class teaches unconditional election. We have books that are sold on this topic that you could do a deep study on. I just want to give you five passages and, and just let the Bible speak for itself. John 6.44 no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. All men are robots. They're bound in sin. No one can come unless the Father draws him. John fifteen sixteen, And you want to know Judas is not present. In John 13, verses 29 through 30, Christ asks Judas to leave. 
He said, what are you going to, what you're going to do, do quickly. And Judas left. And people thought, well, maybe Christ sent Judas to do some task because he was a treasurer. And then, with the 11 present, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Romans 8.29, verse 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. The golden chain of salvation. Everyone he foreknew, he called. So he knows everybody. Does it mean everybody's called? No. Foreknow is that intimate knowledge, that relational knowledge, right? In Matthew 7, these people come to Christ and say, Lord, Lord, did we not perform these miracles for you? And Christ says, Oregon, I never knew you. Well, Christ is not saying he didn't know them. Christ is omniscient. He knows every person. But he's saying, I didn't foreknow you in that relationship. We never had a master-slave, Lord-servant relationship. Same thing here. Those Christ foreknew, He called. Those He called, all of them He justified. All of them that He justified, He glorified. Acts 13.48 Here is Paul preaching to the Gentiles. God changed His name. Saul was a Hebrew name. He became an apostle to the Gentiles. He became Paul. And when he preached to the Gentiles... When the Gentiles heard this, Acts 13, 48, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. All those who were chosen believed. Again, faith comes after their election. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, We know, brothers, loved by God that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you with power transform lives because you love the Lord you are chosen by God briefly go through now I want to spend a bulk of our time in the relevancy and the practical application of this teaching so briefly go through the teaching of this doctrine first of all God chose before time Ephesians 1 before creation before the creation of the world God chose some to be holy and blameless in His sight. Secondly, it is not based on man, anything in man. There is some confusion among Christians. All Christians believe in election. Right? Understand that? If you are a believer, if you profess to be a Christian, you believe in election. You believe in predestination. You, you, you have to, because that's what the Bible clearly says. That's not where the debate is. The debate is not, does God elect or no? Every, every Christian leader believes in election. The debate is, is it conditional or is it unconditional? It's God's election based upon man's righteousness. Or is God's selection based on God's foreknowledge of man's faith? Or is it unconditional is it purely based upon God's own will God's own pleasure is it conditional or unconditional it is unconditional because men are dead in sin no one is righteous not even one Ecclesiastes 720 
Isaiah 64, 6, all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. There was, there, we cannot have faith apart from Christ, apart from God's work. Second Timothy 1, 9, He saved us. It's so clear. I mean, so clear. He saved us, not because of anything we have done, but because of His own purpose and grace. Titus 3, 5, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. See, God is not responding to us. Salvation is not on our court. God's not responding to our decision. God is the author and perfecter of salvation. He is the beginning and the end. He started salvation and He will conclude it. It's not because of anything we had done. If we could do anything and cooperate with God's grace to be saved, then it's salvation by works. It's no longer the gospel. The Pharisees were right. Paul was wrong. Salvation by grace means God did it all. It's not based upon us. And finally, it's for the praise of His glory and, gra- glory and glorious grace. Why did God elect for His own glory? Why did God elect some to show forth His grace? And that is why, brethren, if we didn't, if God didn't elect, we would never have known what a merciful God He is. What a gracious, compassionate God He is. First Timothy 1, Paul says, I am put on display as the worst of all sinners. If, a, some, if someone who, who, who rejoiced at the death of Christ, I mean, he rejoiced. That was, you know, he was passing out candy that day, right? He had people over for dinner. He had a party because Christ was crucified. And that was not enough. Christ's death on the cross was enough. He had to go after Christians to continue his anger. And if, says, if I can be saved, there's hope for us all. And God put me on display. Why? To show forth God's grace, God's mercy and compassion. That's the reason. Well, let me close our time with an application of this doctrine of election. A.W. Pink poses this question. How may I know my election? How can I know if I'm elect? And he answered this way. If you had this question this morning, this is the answer. First, by the word of God having come in divine power to the soul, so that your complacency is shattered and your self-righteousness is renounced. First evidence. Secondly, you can know if you're elect if the Holy Spirit has convicted you of your woeful guilt and lost condition. Third, if God has revealed to you the, the sufficiency of Christ to meet your desperate case and to hold on to Christ as your only hope. Fourth, there are marks of the new nature within you. A love for God a sincere love for God, an appetite for spiritual things. There is in you a longing for holiness, a desperate seeking to conform to Christ. Fifth evidence that you're elect is that you you now hate sin. You loathe it. You still commit sin, and so you hate yourself. Like, Paul, what a wretched man I am. 
you hate yourself, you hate your sin, your only boast is Christ. That's the fifth mark that you are elect. Six, by avoiding everything that is condemned by God's word and by sincerely repenting of, of every known transgression. Seventh, giving all diligence to grow in the Christian faith by using all legitimate means. These seven things are evidences of one's election. I didn't know if you're elect, sum it up, there's a change. You love God more than you love yourself. You love Christ more than you love sin. Those things are present. Then you are elect. Obedience is the mark it is a result of someone who has been chosen by God and saved. Well, for believers, you know, for me, this is a, a doctrine that is on the forefront of my mind as I minister, as I live out my life, as I raise my child, as I serve my wife, as I preach the Word of God on Sundays. First of all, the doctrine of election tells me that God is sovereign in salvation. I don't know if Elizabeth, when Elizabeth was saved, I don't know if she's elect or not, but I know it's in God's hands. I don't try to coerce Elizabeth, manipulate her, right? Lay hands on her and pray feverishly right, with many tears and try to exercise some inert vestige of righteousness and to alert that so that she'll be saved. No. I, I pray for her. I teach her the word of God. But my prayer is, God, would you save Elizabeth? Would you save her? Because it depends not on man's will, not on man's desire, but on your mercy. Same thing with ministering the church, ministering to non-believers. Salvation is of the Lord, Jonah 2.9. Secondly, for my own, own salvation, it comforts me in times of my trials, when I'm tempted, when I struggle with sin, when I sin. It, it comforts me because if salvation was up to me, then, man, I would have been unsaved years ago. You know those people that believe in you can lose your salvation? I don't know how they live. I don't understand how they live and how they minister. How, do you, how can you, like, have sanity when, oh, man, did I just lose it? Oh, man, I just blew it. Oh, I just sinned, like, two days in a row, and I'm not a non-Christian. i got to go to church and repent and be a Christian again. Like, how does that work? How do you live sanely in that kind of paradigm. Because of the doctrine of election, it comforts me because salvation is of the Lord. He began the work. He will complete it. I just trust in Him. My salvation and my sanctification is dependent on Christ and my sole role is to believe in Him, to trust in Him. And He will do it. Why? Because He promised it in the Word of God. Also, this doctrine, this truth, deals a death blow to pride. It deals with our self-centeredness and our selfishness. It deals with our earthly boasts. It deals with our judgment of the world. Where before we saw the world and we said, I'm Christian because I'm smarter, I'm wiser, I'm godlier. Right? Because of some kind of righteousness, goodness on my part. This doctrine tells me there are non-Christians who are better than me, 
who are more moral, more righteous. Only reason I'm saved, I'm a Christian, is God's grace, God's mercy. All praise to be Christ. Thirdly, it compels us to go into all the world. Compels us, gives assurance to go to Kazakhstan, to go to Czech Republic, to go to Ireland. Because God promises in Romans 5, 9 that there are, there are remnants and elect in every tribe, tongue, and nation in all the world. And we don't go with the hope, oh, I hope some people get saved, you know, praying or wishing. We go with confidence because we know they're elect there. Our job is to send the preachers who will go and declare the word of God. And God will save his people. That is why we go to UC Irvine. That is why we go to Cal State Long Beach. That is why we go to the town centers. That is why we have evangelism training because of this doctrine of election. And that is why I preach the word. That is why I don't stand up here and do apologetics. That is why I don't knock over people with healing. Not that I could, but that's not, I don't do that. That's why we don't have drama and movie pictures and, you know, laser shows and people dancing up here, right? Because those things do not call the elect to salvation. Only one thing, Psalm 19:7, the word of the Lord is true. It converts the soul. Right? What converts the elect? God's word. All we need to do is preach the word and God will save his people. It gives us confidence. We go to evangelism. It's not about technique. It's not about methodology. It's not about our presentation. It's not about image. It's not about knowing a few terms and illustrations. It's about knowing God's word and faithfully, compassionately, passionately preaching it. Because as we proclaim the word of God, as we call people to salvation through the pre- preaching of God's word, God calls through the Holy Spirit effectually to save His people. Irrelevant doctrine, impractical, nonsense. Nonsense. It is the most relevant truth that transforms lives, may transform us. God, it is our prayer that you would save those here this morning who do not desire to follow you. Or they have a desire and they're counting the cost and they're afraid, they're fearful, they're reticent. Lord, we pray you would call them and you would save them. Lord, seeing their sinfulness, seeing the judgment of God, They'll step over the line. They'll jump up and, and, and plead for your mercy and plead for your compassion. And God, that you'll be merciful and save your people today. Lord, we pray that you would grow us in humility. Humility before you, sovereign, majestic, awesome God of the universe, all creation. Or who are we that you should be mindful of us? Who are we that we should partake of this grace? Lord, may we just prostrate before you, God, and, 
Let's be humble in our adoration of your mercy and grace. Lord, grant us boldness and confidence to proclaim your word. As Paul said, I resolved to know nothing with you except Christ and him crucified. He had the wisdom of the Greeks. He had the power of the Holy Spirit that the Jews wanted. But he wanted to just preach Christ because that is how you say, Lord, may that be our hearts to proclaim Christ and that you say through your word and according to your word. Lord, thank you for this precious truth. May it take root in our hearts and transform our, our lives, our hearts, our thoughts. May we see life to the grit, to the paradigm of, of your sovereignty and salvation. And may it set our lives and our hearts on fire. In Jesus' name, amen.